Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now. They're experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Joining us today at Superheroes of Science, we are in the studio with Creasy Clauser. Creasy is a research manager with Cook Medical. So they hi, you for being here. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Yeah. But the research manager, it, that's kind of like a generic title, right? Yeah, yeah that, that's my, I guess my work title. Actually, you are a biomedical engineer. Yes, biomedical engineering by background. Uh, we do biomedical engineering as a company. Um, and then, yes, my, my role specifically within biomedical engineering at the company is a research manager. So I manage a team of people that do biomedical research. Yeah. Hey, so that are they all like engineers or are they different things? Um, primarily engineers, but we also have scientists on the team as well. So so backgrounds in adjacent fields, um, like biology and chemistry those as well. Okay. 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 So what what's what's a biomedical <laughs> So so you think about engineering as um, you know, the the mathematics, the mechanical, um the, the the problem solver right and it's it's taking all of that and merging it with medical sciences biology physiology anatomy um and so using engineering principles scientific principles to create devices or um you know other other inventions that help people from the healthcare perspective so you know think about you, you go to a doctor's office or a hospital and they have all of these machines and all of these tools that they're using every day those were all designed by people doing biomedical engineering good and you would what what type of tools would you say because i mean i think of a doctor and i think it's okay they're in a procedure they have like these days some kind of camera that was helpful on you know uh, uh, gauze yeah so so biomedical engineering would encompass all of those things right um from from the the machine that is you know displaying physiological parameters like heart rate and the the sensors used to do that those measuring um, from the surgical tools the scalpels that that they're using on you um, but also you know you think about minimally invasive devices technologies to help physicians do procedures without having to do major surgeries um, like catheters like stents and and those are the devices that Cook Medical specializes in so the minimally invasive devices. No. Oh, okay. Now, and like, all right, so to relate to that, I think, okay, I know, well, we white kind of like the gallbladder, <laughs> and it's like microscopic surgery, it does. Yeah, yeah, so that's one example of minimally invasive, certainly, you know, you can go in with a big incision and, and remove the gallbladder or do some sort of corrective surgery. Um, you can also go in more minimally invasively through a port. Um, where instead of one large incision, you have a small incision, and so you need tools that can fit through the, the port or the small incision. Um, likewise, on the vascular side, you can have an open heart surgery to repair um, your aorta or, or other blood vessels, um, or you can have an endovascular procedure where they access through a tiny little prick into a blood vessel and they can track catheters to your heart or wherever they're going to intervene and run devices through those catheters to repair. 
uh, rather than having to do open procedure. So I'll say when you said catheter, I'm not I follow a different type of catheter. So there's also urinary catheters, though. Yeah. Yeah. catheter, but catheter is essentially a, a tube that goes in your body somewhere, right? That's a catheter. I did not know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's creating access to the inside without having to do a big open surgical procedure. So your title is research. Yes. And how does how does the research site play into then these final products that are yeah how do, how do they get dad how do they get into the hands of surgeons or or, or other doctors yeah um, and so you think about the the phase of um, how products are developed for for any industry um, you have an early research phase where you're defining your problem you're creating your need statements you're looking into what what the scientific drivers are behind what you're trying to achieve um, and doing. Uh, concept ideation, um, doing prototyping, doing early testing, and all of that is kind of the research phase that has to occur to have a proof of concept of whatever you're trying to develop prior to going into development, which is a more formal process that has a lot of regulations, um, a lot of documentation required. Um, and, and that development is the next step towards getting a device to where it could go then to a first in man or a clinical trial which is then the next, you know, the next step is regulatory approval and then actually use used in the field. Uh, so there's all these steps that you go through to get a device from, hey, we have this problem we're trying to solve to here's a thing that you can use to, to solve that problem. Um, so the research is that very beginning part where we're really digging into, you know, what is the clinical disease? Um, what are the current treatment options? Why are those not working? Um, how can we make patient care better? Um, for this particular problem that we're trying to address. But how do you come up with the problem? Yeah, <laughs> what is it exactly? Yeah, so um, you, you, do, you can do some of some early assessment. We do a lot of reading literature. Um, so, you know, what are the experts in the field saying? Um, what are academic researchers at universities looking into? Um, what are the failure modes of current devices? Um, you can look at databases for like, um, in, the, in the US, there's a database called the MOD database where any device-based failure physicians report that and it's public. So you can go and look and see for this procedure or this type of device, these are all the ways that it has failed. Recently. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, and so you could, that's one way to look at it. Literature is one way to look at it. Um, we also do a lot of in-person conversations or shadowing with physicians in their, in their operating rooms um, to see, you know, how are they using their current tools? Where do they not have tools? Um, to really get to the point of like defining a clinical problem um, and figuring out what are the design requirements that that to solve that problem. Yeah. But okay, that's interesting. What the day like? You guys do a lot of research, then. Yes, research. Research is a, a very well it can be. It can be a very long part of a project, right? So. Um, take a catheter, for example, the, the process to get to that catheter's of use in a physician's hands could be years long. Um, you know, that concept may have started five years prior in a research phase. Um, and then it takes, you know, all that time to get it to the point where it's ready to go on the market. It has all of the safety testing done, um, all of the regulatory approvals. Uh, but that research phase is really important because if you don't figure out what the physician or the end user needs at the beginning, um, and what your basic scientific or engineering principles are that you need to operate under, um, 
you might end up with a device at the end that physicians look at and are like, well, that's not helpful to me. Like, I don't, yeah. that doesn't solve my problem or that creates all these other problems that we didn't think about. Um, so, so the research phase is really defining the problem in a way that we are, are de-risking the project. You know, we're confident that if we can achieve the prototype, the prototype will address the problem. Okay. Yeah. Look, I have two questions. Okay. Did I cut you off? No. Okay. Oh, darn. I haven't yet. Usually in the first five minutes, I have at least one. Yeah. But all right, my first question is, how are you doing your early design research? Because you can't, I mean, you can't be like, hey, we want to do this art caster thing. Do you mind if we take a bang? You know? <laughs> well, you would be surprised. <laughs> no, no. Um, first step is always what can you do on a bench top setting can you create a model that mimics the, the anatomy um that you're going to be um tracking in so for example at blood vessels we can take like mri scans of patients and then 3d print and that mimics anatomy to, to look at and track things through um you can do it in soft materials like silicone so that they behave more similarly in the in the way that the vein would rather than a harder plastic um and that's that's a good model usually for for first pass is um to do a bench top there's also animal experimentation so you can do testing in in animals with similar sized anatomy um for example for humans in the vasculature pigs are a really good model because everything is similarly sized to humans um there's also diseased models specifically where, you know, you might have an animal that genetically is more predisposition to have a disease. So you can do studies in that specific disease as well. And that's that's all good, like preclinical testing so that you can work out a lot of kinks before you go into the, to human. Um, there are also some tests you can do with explanted human tissue. So um, think, for example, if you have a an artery that is totally blocked off and they had no way to open it um they might remove that artery and insert like a graft or a tube as a replacement well what are they going to do with that tissue that they removed so we can set up studies where we can get our hands on that that removed tissue and, and do testing and experimentation on it um that's not without significant you know work and regulation to do yeah. that type of work but you know it is possible to take that's taking out the trash yeah all fish ships but otherwise is going to an incinerator right yeah. so it all you know we might as well use these tissues yeah. to try to improve our device development and testing. Yeah. So how does a you walk me through the catheter cast the, the heart catheter? Yeah. How does that actually? Because I mean, I, you you said you could go into it and actually. Yeah. So you can go to get to the heart. Um, there are many different vessels that you can access, kind of depending on on what treatment you're doing. Um, but yet yeah, you can access through an artery or vein in the wrist, um, in the ankle. One of the most common is to access in the, the legs, actually, in the thigh area, um, because you have a fairly straight shot to the heart from there, and the, the vessels are larger, so they're easy easier to get things in and out of. Um, and so you go through, um, it's called the Seldinger technique. So, so you would insert a needle and then into the vein or artery, and then through that needle, I should have brought show and tell. Um, <laughs> yeah, through that needle, you would put a small wire, and that wire then inserts into the vein or the artery, then you can remove your needle. And then over that wire, you can go in with a catheter or under access. Sometimes you do a larger sheet that's really short first and then a long catheter through that. Uh, and then track that all the way through the vasculature. So like from here, all the way up and around to the heart. 
And then you have access to the heart or an aorta or wherever else you're trying to do the treatment too. Okay. Um, and that navigation all occurs under x-ray or a fluoroscopy is what it's often called. Right. So Interesting. They, they do that access and then you can't see anything anymore. Right. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, a, I mean, it's a minuscule the hole that they go through. So that's where top of you know, millimeters. But yeah. Um, and so then, yeah, through x-ray, they can trap where that device is going in the body and then get it to the point where they can then remove disease tissue or deploy a device to cage it off um or sometimes they'll go in with a balloon like an actual like, yeah. push things open um to reopen blood flow if there's no blood flow that was my question <laughs> yeah so you get the access to that so let's say you go in through the leg and you go all the way out you get to the heart but i, I can't imagine what sorts of things you could do and that's such a small <clears throat> so you can do a, a lot of things yeah uh, if you have a a artery that's stenosed so not open enough not enough blood flow you can open that up um if the stenosis is calcified you can remove that calcium think about plumbing and you go in with like a like a rotablator type thing that goes in and bounces around and like decalcifies or kicks away blockages and plumbing it's the exact same concept um actually uh physicians that do these procedures sometimes call themselves plumbers of the body because that's what that is essentially yeah what they're doing for um oh yeah and it's such a small tool yeah it's a lot and that's our challenge as engineers right it's to make tools that can fit into these small little channels and then perform all of these procedures um stents are actually really interesting because um a stent is like a metal cage Essentially, that you can open up a, a thing or an artery with it. Okay. It's closed. Um, I wore a strap and it was just like a piece of wood crammed in there. Yeah, Look. that's exactly what I mean. That is. So it's a metal cage. So you have like um like a metal tube, and from that tube you remove material. There's a variety of ways to do that. And so you have like a like a mesh type design, or um you know different pores, and that's this little little tiny little tube, right? And that's deployed through these catheters and then expanded open when it gets into the vein uh more the artery target area where you have to be so it starts off tiny to fit through the catheter but then can get larger once it's in the place that it needs to be in the, in the body so you can size it such that you know this patient has an artery that was you know eight millimeters in diameter it was then zeroed or two or whatever because it's it's closed off and then you put that stent in and it's back to eight cold up so talking about these devices would would cook medical or would a place that works on biomedical devices also have to design like what machinery do they need or is that something they they yeah to outsource this or is it something that you design these machines so that they'll yeah so that's another um kind of category right of um of devices uh sometimes we might do the research or partner with a company that specializes in that type of imaging tool or machinery that's needed. Um, sometimes we might develop it internally. Um, sometimes we make our devices compatible with things that are already in the operating room. So we know that they have, you know, this um, ultrasound machine from a, a company that makes ultrasound machines. Or we're gonna make our devices compatible with that ultrasound machine so that they don't have to buy a separate piece of equipment just to use hotbacks that we make. So it's complicated. That's more design of requirements, right? Is this device must solve this problem and be compatible with X, Y, Z other tools. Yeah. You're like, 
Wizards. And I you have to choke out because it's like a lot of all things in my veins to be able to go in and actually to poison. So I mean, it's, yeah, this is the scale is just kind of hard to understate. It is. Yeah, I, I should have brought some show and tell me they can send you guys some pictures to to insert it <laughs> to, to your kitty cows. Um, but yeah, that's I think that's what makes it fun is you have to have an understanding of the anatomy and physiology of the body to be compatible with it. Like if you didn't know what an artery looked like or how it how it behaves or what size it was, you wouldn't be able to make these tools that work yeah. with it. So what's a feasible number of projects that that you could work on at any given time? So in, in research, um, it's typical to have two or three okay. primary projects for a person. Okay. Um, and, and that's usually enough to keep you plenty, plenty busy. <laughs> right. Um, that's going to vary pretty widely. Um, you know, you might work for a, a startup company that only is doing one thing. And so you're all in on that problem and you might, you know, just do that one project all the times. Um, or working at a larger company like I do, you know, we have a lot of projects going on at any given time that we're, we're trying to focus on. So you would have more going on concurrently um, and, and trying to manage your time and switch tasks between those projects. So the legality of it. Regulation, yes. <laughs> you mentioned, well, that's one of the steps you talked about. You might, there might be like two levels of that you've mentioned. Yes. Um, there are a lot of standards that exist um, and then regulatory bodies that enforce those standards and other rules, right? So in the United States for medical devices, it's the FDA, right? Um, they have to approve everything that's going to be used um, on, on people. <laughs> um, there are different levels of approval process depending on how much risk the device confers. So you mentioned like gauze or a tongue depressor. That's going to have very minimal regulation, right? Because the, the risk of harm with gauze or tongue depressor is very negligible. Um, but then you've got a stent that's being permanently deployed in you for the remainder of your life. Like that's there forever. That's going to have a much, much higher um, burden of work that you have to do to demonstrate that it meets all of these requirements. And by requirements, I mean mechanical safety testing. Um, I mean biocompatibility testing. Um, able to not prohibit the patient from getting further treatments so um you know a patient has a stent they may forget they have it or you know they may go to a different doctor someday that doesn't know that they have it they don't mention it they get put on in an mri so you have to think about like that patient that needs to be safe with an mri machine or whatever else they might experience down the line yeah. um and so the fda in the u.s is it's the body that's concerned with making sure that all of these factors are considered before they approve a device for use. Um, they also then track how that device is performing clinically when it does start being used in, in humans. Um, so if we see a large percentage of failures um, or adverse effects to the patient, um, we as a company are responsible for tracking that. And then the FDA is responsible for regulating that. We're tracking it and addressing any concerns that that come up so we may have to stop making a device or make changes to the device and there's too many of a similar type of failure in a good ring but it, a lot of okay so i understand like you've made a new design for a tongue presser depressor it's going to like be more efficient not shut people or whatever. yeah and so okay as i said but it's like the first people that did a deployable expanding stint 
I, I would not think it'd be easy at all to get that approved. No, the definitely being the first into any market is much more challenging. There's so much more scrutiny on all of the benchtop testing and all of the animal testing that you would have done in advance before they ever let you put it in a human. Um, so you're going to do, you're going to think about every way that that device could fail. And then you're going to design a test mm -hmm. to test that. <laughs> you're like, wow. Yeah. So you're trying to break your stuff. Yeah, well, essentially, it's like, what can you put this thing through before it breaks? And then that's how you can get approval for that type of abuse. Um, then they might let you put it in one human and see how that goes. And then they might let you put it in 10 humans and see how it goes. And then, you know, you design your clinical trials to cascade in, in size um, and get more users involved as you prove that safety, not only like during the use and the procedure, but also over time, you know, that... Is the, is the patient still having their problem addressed at one month and has no issues, you know, two months, six months, a year, five years. Um, and so, yeah, depending on the severity of the disease and how complex your device is, um, that's all incorporated into the regulatory process. Yeah. yeah. All right. So this might be one step removed from you. I'm not sure. But uh, you mentioned the um, clinical test. Mm-hmm. Well, I hear clinical tests, text. Uh, you hear that all the time. I mean, especially like, you know, I was looking up supplements the other day. Yeah, and sign up or help them something. And then I all these, it says, though, these clinical trials that went through this happen. How do these clinical trials, what are they really, and how the heck do they work? Yeah, um, so clinical trials, it's separate from what I do, but I can talk to it. Okay. Um, biomedical engineers actually often do work in clinical functions as, as well. Um, so it's not engineering, but it's adjacent to engineering. Um, and, and yeah, the, the clinical trials, it, it essentially it's, it's taking something that has already gone through the previous safety testing with benchtop and animal and whatever else, but it's saying like, we have this new treatment. We're confident that it's going to work based off of the testing that exists, but now we need to try it in a human. Um, and so sometimes that'll be, you know, we are looking for the ideal patient. Yeah. <laughs> and if we find that patient, we're going to do them first and then scale the complexity. So yeah, you see, you see a clinical trial for XYZ. Uh, that's just data that's, that's supporting the safety and sometimes safety and efficacy. So safety is like, it's not going to hurt you. Right. Efficacy is, it's not going to hurt you and it works to solve the problem. <laughs> right. And those are two yeah, separate things. Um, and so you could have clinical trials for safety and then you could have clinical trials for safety and efficacy. Um, and so, yeah, any, anytime you're looking at any new product, um, and it says clinical trial, that doesn't necessarily mean no risk, right? That means yeah. less risk, depending on what the trial was designed to show. Yeah. I guess, is there a printing <laughs> fridge for something like that, that's going to help people there? You probably have patients that are really like, I want to try it. Like I need, yeah, it'll be, it'll be patients that like have no other options. And they're like, I will try anything at this point. Yeah. Um, so after, after you do your ideal patient, a lot of times then you get like, you know, this, I've tried these things and it haven't worked, or I'm not a good candidate for this treatment because of all these other factors that I have, you know, this, this might be my one option. Um, that's actually how minimally invasive came along because, you know, there are patients that can't handle having their full chest cracked open in a long procedure. Think about a, you know, 80 year old whose body just isn't capable of handling in the majority of cases, handling that stress of the procedure, but also the healing from that procedure, it's, it's pretty significant. Um, so, you know, what can we do for these patients that 
solves the problem like an open procedure, but is not the open procedure. And then that's how minimally invasive technology um, came along for for all sorts of different clinical cases. And I was just, I was just imagining you behind a doctor when they're doing a the surgery, thinking, hmm, "I do that better." A hundred percent. That's what we do. Right? Like they, I go and I, I wash them, and I'm like. So if you had a tool that did this instead, would that be helpful for you? Or, you know, what don't you like about that that you're using? Uh, or, you know, what patients can't you use this for? Yeah. Um, also, you have to design around human factors. So not only is it the device going to address the problem, but like, is it easy to use for the user? And can they, in what ways can they mess it up? You know, yeah. oh, right. <laughs> you want to eliminate the error that they can put into the, the treatment. Um, and so in the design, also, you're thinking about, well, how can I label this so that they always know what the right direction is? Or how can I make it more visible under the x-ray so that they don't lose the end of whatever they're, they're working on? Or um, how can I make it so that if they don't follow the instructions, it still doesn't break? Right. So you can't design everything out of any system, right? It's not feasible. It, uh, you could spend 20 years and not design all of the potential problems out, but you know what can you design out, yeah. and that's that's definitely considered in in the research and development phases for for biomedical engineering. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's I, it's, that's something we take for granted. Oh, he is in the me and speaking. I'm sure there's a lot of people somewhat like me, um, but it's hey, we just take those things for granted. Yeah, I certainly didn't know about it I, until I started looking at engineering programs and like what different types of engineering exists. And then I was like, oh, I suppose there is a need for that type of problem solver. Well, you mentioned I mean, yes, even oh, someone had to develop yes. that one. The apparatus you used was developed by someone, Catered. right? And the more we advance in technology, especially today, we're in a huge technology boom. Right. I mean, that's not surprising to anyone. Uh, that only adds, it opens more doors, but it adds more complexity to everything that you do. And so there's has to be people in the background figuring all this out. Yeah. Well, was, yeah, that, and that's, that's cool. I mean, cause I mean, they know, it just look like, like when you mentioned gauze, yep. you know, like a bandaid. Huh. Right. Will we use band-aids in 10 years from now? Or will you have something else that, oh, just put this on and take care of it. Yeah, exactly. And so it's, that's. Those are, those would be fun challenges mm -hmm. to be able to think of how to help, basically help society, how help people. Yeah, I, I would say like, that's the number one thing. If you're thinking about getting into a field like this, you have to like solving problems that are hard to solve, right? Because that's what the, it is. <laughs> that's what the it is, you know? Um, you have to be willing to accept challenges that may not have solutions, but you still try. Mm -hmm. Um and for me, I, I love that. I love going into to my job every day and asking the questions that don't have answers and then trying to figure out answers or design studies to figure out the answers or, or to solve these problems. Um, you know, that, that gets, that's exciting for me. Um, and I think that that's a commonality among a lot of engineering fields and scientists is just like willing to dive into something that you know, you can't just Google the answer. It doesn't yeah. need that. Right. Yes. But I like that. I think that start, that part would be fun uh, with my personality. I would love to do that. But I don't, what I don't think that could handle is the next step. 
that have come up with this idea and there's so many regulations and so many things that slow me down. I'm like, I can help people I can do yes. It's always, I think that, that would be hard for me it, able to figure out how to get through that. It can be, it can be hard. Um, it can also be hard when you reach a point where like, man, my the idea just didn't work or, yeah. you know, technology isn't there right now to solve this problem. So I got to let it go and move on to something else. And, and maybe we come back to it later with new technology or, or maybe not. And that it's hard to let go. And to accept sometimes that there is no answer or there's not a good answer. How too long long do you get into before that happens? I I realize it's different every time, but how long have you worked on a project and you had to be like, okay, we found a way that didn't work. We got to move on. Um, So I've I've had projects that I've worked on for a year plus, a year to two years before we we were able to say like, yeah, we've explored everything that we've explored and it's just not going to work. Um, I've also, you know, failed as fast as, you know, we tried something for three to six months and it didn't work, you know, so, um, failing fast is actually something you want to try to do as an engineer. Um, you know, you don't want to spend 10 years on a problem because you didn't try to do critical experiments early on that would have disproven your, your concept, right? So you want to think, how can I disprove what I'm trying to do and then do that as early as you can, um, so that you don't run the risk of spending years of time and all of this money developing something that's not gonna ultimately um, end up any, any, anywhere. Uh, we like to describe um, kind of the, the process of product development as a funnel. So at the opening of the funnel, you got all these ideas and you're throwing them in and you're throwing them in and over time they shake out, they shake out until at the end, you know, one or two solutions pop out and you've solved one or two things. You started with a bunch, yeah. so you failed 98 times, but you won two times and those two times are worth all of that work. Indeed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University Superheroes of Science. If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view and share the love. Boiler up.